This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Jump Statistical Discovery Software from SAS. Jump, spelled J-M-P, is an easy-to-use tool that connects powerful analytics with interactive graphics. The drag-and-drop interface of Jump enables quick exploration of data to identify patterns, interactions, and outliers. Jump has a scripting language for reproducibility and interfacing with R. Click on this episode's sponsored link to receive a free info kit that includes an interview with DataViz experts Kaiser Fung and Alberto Cairo. In the interview, they discuss information gathering, analysis, and communicating results. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish, still with a hoarse voice from a good week at the Tapestry Conference in St. Augustine a couple weeks ago, but making my way through what I'm calling my month of story. And I'm excited this week because I have a guest with me who tells stories and conveys data in a different sort of way than I think most of us are probably used to uh, at least doing on our own. So I'm very excited to have with me Alvin Chang from Vox. Uh, dot com. Alvin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. Um, now, you and I spoke probably a week or two ago at length about stories because I was trying to sort of quizzing you as I was getting prepared to do my uh, talks on stories. So I'm excited to dive in um, and get your take on it. I thought maybe we'd start by having you give us a little bit of a background, you know, where you came from and how you came to Vox and maybe talk a little bit about your approach. You do a lot of illustrations and a lot of animations. And so maybe you could talk about that approach to communicating data and communicating analysis at, at Vox? So uh, a lot of what I do started when I was in grad school and I was studying a lot of, of how people learn, how people take in new information. And that kind of led to uh, my work at Vox where my approach is largely um, I'm trying to teach you something. Uh, it's using a completely different framework than you might assume. And let me teach this uh, to you in the best way I know how. So the, the method that I've settled on and I've been experimenting with quite a bit now is, is comics. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lot of folks have probably seen these like blocky Lego-like comics on Vox.com. That's me making comics because I don't know how to make any other shapes other than squares. So we, we end <laughs> up with uh, blocky comics. But I'm using those comics to illustrate frameworks that readers can explore. So that, it, you know, so for example, I just made a comic showing why the Republican health care plan, the incentives aren't lining up when they're trying to replace the individual mandate. So, you know, I'm using these block figures and I'm representing coverage as people who are under some kind of like awning and I'm representing not coverage as people being outside. And eventually I've, I've created a little world where readers can play around with the scenario and think, oh, I wonder what happens if I move these sick people under and cover them. Then, you know, the, the cost of coverage would go up. And I kind of create this world that, uh, that users can play around in. It's a sandbox. They can kind of do a thought experiment in their head and get an output. Right. And I think ultimately that's my goal is helping readers understand, oh, if, this is, if I change something like this, what would happen? Right. But what's interesting about your approach is that you are using these illustrations and these block figures where lots of other people have tried doing these things where there's a kind of engagement. The New York Times has those, you know, draw a line sort of thing and, you know, other ones where you move a square around or something. But you're actually using illustrations of people. And even though they're squares, they're still, you know, we still sort of see those as people. So 
as you are drawing those, do you sort of think that that connects with people in a, in a, in a better way than some sort of just abstract shape? Yes. And I think that's because humans are really good at orienting themselves in a space and internalizing a two-dimensional grid. So, for example, we're really good at following instructions. If I told you, uh, go three blocks right and five blocks north, uh, we're really good at thinking about how much we've traveled in that distance. Uh, we're not so good at looking at a line going up and a line going down and kind of figuring out what the slopes are. Those are things we're not really great at. So when I create these figures, uh, I, I try to leverage uh, this thing that we're really good at, this thing of, okay, you know, gravity exists in the worlds I create when, uh, or, or rain exists, for example. So in the Obamacare example, I have people under some kind of, sh you know, some kind of awning and they're covered. So they're not going to get hit by, you know, whatever's coming down. It's just, right. it's, it's a silly thing. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are say things like, Oh, now we need a comic to explain this to us. But I'm th in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you didn't have to think about whether or not what that represented. You just internalize that automatically. Yeah. And so I'm trying to offload a lot of that information so that we can get to the core concept. Right, right, right. And when you are trying to convey that information, what are the different mechanisms you're using in terms of, you sort of mentioned one of, of being able to move the figures around. Um, we've seen lots of, you know, things like scrolly telling, both vertical and horizontal. We've have animations. Are there certain approaches that you take that you think work better than, than others? So I always try to introduce, uh, characters first so when when we, we always think about kind of human driven storytelling and having main characters and so on and so forth and we we struggle to do that when we use data or when we're talking about larger frameworks because uh, we think how, how does a single person ever represent this bird's eye view that we're getting with data and so i've just kind of short-circuited all of that and said you know what like i'm going to make this block figure represent the entire data set or this entire population and I think the readers kind of follow along and understanding this blocky figure represents the yeah. average uninsured person, for example. Um, and that helps me explain the both the journey of that average person, but also the incentives of that average person. It helps you kind of empathize with people who are in that position as mm -hmm. opposed to looking at data sets and trying to decide where where the incentives lie there. Yeah. Or, and that, so I think... The goal is how do you empathize with the data set? Yeah, right. And no, I, yeah, yeah. The empathy, I think, is a is a, is a key point. Um, so when you think about telling stories, or when you think about others who are saying, "Oh, we're going to tell stories with these data," do you sort of push back when people say, oh, "I'm going to tell stories with these data," and they give you a table and they give you a chart? Whereas you're saying the chart isn't enough. I want to make this connection with people through the illustration, through you know this image of a person. I don't push back mostly because I've done that often. Yeah, it's, yeah. That's a very easy trap to fall into where you, you know, you go find your data or collect your data. You do the analysis. You make some charts. And then you write around the charts. And right. you, you, weave it, you weave it together. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's the right approach. Mm -hmm. you, you're trying to show off that you've done the work mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to explain what the work is saying. And so... I understand the purpose of people who put a whole bunch of charts in a story and then write around it. I, I get that purpose. Um, I think for me, the purpose is more so this data seems to paint uh, a picture that pushes you to think about this issue in a different way. Mm -hmm. And here's, here's how that all fits together. Yeah. And here's this. So, so a lot of the, a lot of times these, these comics 
aren't actually showing any type of data set whatsoever. They're just showing you a new framework, and eventually I'll come around and say, here's the data that backs up these, these frameworks. Right. You know, what's, what's interesting about, about your approach is I've been sort of thinking lately that one thing that, you know, economists or analysts like me and the folks that I usually work with, what, what we need to do better is pairing the in-depth, sophisticated data work with actually talking to people the way, you know, your colleague Sarah Cliff, for example, does a really good job of going out and talking to people. But what I'm hearing from you is that it's not so much about talking to an individual person or people and getting them to tell you something. It's more about getting the reader to connect with the image or the personification of a person and not an individual per se. Uh, yeah, I think I agree with that. I, yeah. I think a lot of times as reporters, we go out and talk to individuals and use those individuals as characters to help our readers connect to the story. Yeah. Um, but we often have this conversation in journalism where we say, oh, it's an, that person is an imperfect character, mm. meaning they don't represent the data set in the way that we want them to, uh, or that's the most accurate, you know, they're, they're an outlier in some way. Right. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, we have the data and the reason we need this, this human being to play an in intermediary between the data and the reader is why, like, why can't we play that role? Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk to these, I'll talk to people to get an idea of, um, the nuances of their individual situations. But at the end of the day, I'd rather help people connect with what the data is saying. Yeah. Because I think it's a more accurate way of thinking about issues versus saying, you know, like reporters will do this all the time. They'll cite a, a heart-wrenching story and say, and here's the data to prove it. Right. And of course, everyone's, everyone knows, you know, that's really sad, but let's yeah. look at, let's yeah. see what bird's eye view is. So I think there's a way to merge that. Um, I'm, I'm trying to. Yeah. Uh, but I think we're still, we're still figuring it out and I'm still figuring it out. Um, occasionally I'll be writing about something that's, you know, incredibly sad and be looking at, looking through data sets that, you know, researchers have put together. And, and I realize there's some, something missing that there's kind of a, a soul missing there of mm. a, a real human story. And I think there's, there's power in, in those real human stories, but it's always, it's, I think it's, there's always this dissonance between humans don't always fit into larger data sets really well. Right. Right. So. Yeah. When you're working on a piece that might have this real emotional, even sad attachment to it, like how do you approach that when you're doing the illustration? Do you feel, you know, do you feel torn about, you know, making the, the illustration look like a sad person? And, and, and by extension, actually, you know, how do you approach um, race and gender? I get this question a lot. Like, should my line for men be baby blue color and for women be, you know, baby pink. And I'm like, no, please, please don't do that. But how, how do you approach that when you have issues that, you know, or, or, or characteristics of people that, you know, might be sensitive for, for, for readers? Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting you say that because I recently drew a cartoon of, of my family. I represent people through cartoons and sometimes yeah. they are real people and people happen, happen to have different shades of skin. And that's a very important part of how we talk about, uh, the world. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I colored my skin by using the eyedropper tool on one of the photos that I, of myself, which yeah. is usually how I do real people. And uh, one of my colleagues said, I think you, uh, you made yourself too yellow. And, you know, so, you know, and I'm an Asian man. So, you know, that's, I said, well, I just used the eyedropper tool. Yeah. And 
I, I am hyper conscious when I am illustrating other people uh-huh. because I think there are there are traps you can fall into that you just don't understand. But when I was illustrating myself, uh, I it. thought I thought you know I got this right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I I think there's uh, my approach generally has been to um, this is this is going to sound vague, but to be as generous as possible and empathetic as possible mm. in. Um, understanding how people would want to be represented mm. because I think I think about myself a lot I think a good example is like my, my cartoons have squares for eyes one of the defining characteristics of Asian people is their eyes look different mm. we have more almond shaped eyes and so like do, do I change the I call them wakas so do I change their waka eyes <laughs> to make to be more Asian or is that is that not the way that I would be, want to be represented? And that's right. something that was, a, you know, that's kind of a question that I I had to wrestle with early on. Yeah. And and I I think kind of going a little bit further, if we're talking about like, for example, housing discrimination, or we're talking about uh, healthcare, the question is, how do I represent that one person in the data set? Do I use a, a white male, right. a Hispanic woman? What is the length of hair? And yeah. that's, it's something that I'm figuring out, but I've and this is the first time I've actually kind of uh, told anyone this, but I've decided that we see enough representations of, you know, white men. Yeah. Who's, you know, sorry, John. No, and you so, know, well, <laughs> I, I always go back to the Homer Simpson line of, you know, I think the line was, I'm a white male between the age of 25 and 54. Everybody listens to me. So, you know, <laughs> I, yeah, I think I think the white male representation is we're enough. We're, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I've just said the default is going to be a woman of color and mm-hmm. that, and, and then we'll all, I'll undefault out of that, okay. which is, right. which has been, gotten a very interesting, uh, a lot of readers have asked why I do this. Just yeah. send me emails and asked, and I just said, you know, that's just, if I made it a white male, you wouldn't ask a single question about yeah. this. So, but you know, let's move on here. That's right. Uh, I don't know if there's a, I, I, I don't know if that's, the right approach but if there's a reason why it shouldn't be a woman of color then i won't change that change so right, i think right. that's uh that's been my approach but yeah, it's yeah. been a big problem that a lot of people a lot of journalists don't ever run into because we don't represent yeah through, through illustration no that's right that's right i think that i think the you know the most the, the the closest most people come to is you know blue for men and pink for women and i think most people sort of hate that color scheme anyways because it's just sort of childlike anyways. So, so there's that. Um, does the block illustration you think sort of help get away from some of the, the racial or gender, um, portrayals because it's a little more abstract. I mean, you still have to make all these other decisions about skin color and hair, but right. I mean, I think the, the, the reason that I settled on blocks, mm-hmm. other than the fact that I couldn't really do anything else when I was starting out. And other that you have probably an awesome Minecraft world is my guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's so funny. I, I I didn't actually play Minecraft until people started telling me that these look oh, like wow. Minecraft. All right, cool. I had to start. I had to start playing. Yeah, you started playing. Um, yeah, it's so one of the reasons why I decided you know these block figures should look the way the way they are is I didn't want to convey information inadvertently, uh, you know, making decisions inadvertently without me, you know, purposefully doing it. Mm-hmm. So I have this like. Uh, I call it the Waka Morgue, which is, you know, it's kind of, you know, in the old school times, they used to have like a morgue of like assets that you drag onto a newspaper layout. And so you, I have a whole bunch of uh, just default Wakas mm-hmm. lined up in my in my Illustrator file. 
and they they're just defaults. They don't they don't they have very default hair. They have you know a square for a hair. They have a square for eyes. They have gray shirts, gray pants, and like yeah, uh, and they're like they have gray skin even. And then right. from there, that's I, I have to make decisions as opposed to defaulting into uh, any decisions I'm making. So that's that's been a really interesting process. Yeah, uh, uh, making sure my process doesn't accidentally default into conveying information that I don't mean to convey, which right. is something that we think about all the time with mm. charts. And we, we think about all the time with um, any type of visualization or, in, or, or infographic or interactive. Um, I don't know if many journalists or, or data people are thinking about it with comics necessarily. Yeah. Um, but it's gotten me into the world of, you know, comic book artists who think about this regularly. Yeah. And the overlap is astounding of, of how we represent stories and data through visuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just happen to not talk very much to people who make comics. Right. And people who make comics don't talk very much. <laughs> and yet we all would probably get along really well, would be my guess, right? I, I would think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, if someone were to come to you and say, I'm really into data, I'm into data visualization, but I, I want to make things that are more engaging. You know, I think you've, you've carved out a space where things are engaging in kind of a different way. And that's a big challenge for data viz. Like the nine millionth bar chart is, you know, not that exciting, but if someone were to come to you and say, you know, I'm a, I'm a D three programmer, I'm a Stata programmer, but I want to make things more engaging. And I want to, you know, try some of these illustrations. What would your, what would your advice be for people who sort of want to try to do something, you know, I don't want to say more creative. That's not the right word, but, you know, try some illustrations. And I think, you know, whenever I talk to to graphic designers, they're always like, anyone can do this. It's just learning and practice. It's just a skill. So what, what would you say to people who are like, I'm tired of making my 900th bar chart. I want to try something a little different. Mm -hmm. So I, I I have two pieces of advice. Um, One is know how your data gets where it gets to. So, for example, a lot of research will, will have an, a very interesting data gathering process. Like, for example, research assistants standing out in the street and gathering this data. And a lot of times as, as people who report and tell stories on this data, we don't ever cover that data gathering process. But that, that narrative is actually incredibly important to the way we understand what the data is saying. Yeah. So a lot of times in the comics, the comics kind of serve as like, okay, this is what the data gathering process looked like. And then you and then you kind of pique this curiosity in the reader's mind of, oh, I get the question that we were asking when we were looking for this data. I wonder what the data says. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And so I think that's the that's the first step. And I think you know virtually anyone can do that. And in fact, when you ask people who work with data uh, these types of questions at uh, you know a cocktail party, mm-hmm. they'll do an excellent job at making it a, an engaging process. They'll say. You know, first we did this, and then we did this, and then guess what we found? You know, right. that's, that's great. Uh, they, they're not going to pull out a, a bar chart from their back pocket. I mean, right. some people, but, you know, <laughs> um, but those are the people who usually don't get reinvited to come. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. um, I think the second piece of advice, I've been trying to tell this to my colleagues, is there are many ways that you can try to do this without knowing how to draw. Mm. And... I, I know it's terrifying, and I know it's terrifying because I've done it, and I, it was terrifying for me to think, oh, this is going to be published, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, like, people are going to see this. Yeah. 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 Um, but I think the goal is if it takes you drawing on the back of a napkin to explain a concept better, 
then why not draw on the back of a napkin, take a picture of, of it and upload it. Mm. And then the next time you'll say, well, napkins are terrible to draw and I don't know why I did that. Let me try a piece of paper or let me try a whiteboard and, or let me try like Google Draw or something, which is yeah. a very easy tool to use. And at the end of the day, you'll get something that helps explain a concept better. And if you can get over uh, your ego being bruised of people saying, well, that, that was terrible, which you know people say to me all the time. And I right. think, well, okay, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> then I think we'll be able to um, move forward a little bit. I think there's a, there's a huge fear of this is going to be bad. Yeah. But... And you see it all the time in like research papers and reports where you have these terrible flowcharts with, uh, you, you know, they want to do something more, mm-hmm. but they're just going to use squares, lines and words in the squares without actually exploring the, the, the concept further. Yeah. At the end of the day, a flowchart is a concept. You know, at the end of the day, a line chart is a concept. They're just accepted concepts. So um, I think we, we have to be sort of brave in that, in that world a little bit. And be terrible for a little bit. And I, you know, to be honest, you know, there there are times I'll finish a story and I'll, I'll think, oh god, that was that was bad. <laughs> I didn't do a good job. Um, but otherwise, I wouldn't have the stuff that I I think has done a good job of explaining right. the concept. Right. Uh, that's great. I think uh, be brave and be terrible is a good uh, is a good mantra to to kick people off. Um, Alvin, this is great. Uh, I want to thank you a lot for coming on the show and letting me pick your brain now a few times uh, on story and, and your approach to telling stories and uh, communicating information. So thanks so much for coming on. It's been great. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks, John. And thanks to everyone for tuning into this week's episode. The uh, month of story continues for another couple of weeks. Uh, so until next time, this has been the Policy of His Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Jump Statistical Discovery Software from SAS. Jump, spelled J M P, is an easy to use tool that connects powerful analytics with interactive graphics. The drag and drop interface of Jump enables quick exploration of data to identify patterns, interactions, and outliers. Jump has a scripting language for reproducibility and interfacing with R. Click on this episode's sponsored link to receive a free info kit that includes an interview with data viz experts Kaiser Fung and Alberto Cairo. In the interview, they discuss information gathering, analysis, and and communicating results.